dignidad. concept of dignity that underpins all kind of human rights theory it is still this like really contested subject dignity is such a good word in hindi mariyada in colloquial hindi shan i'm responsible for my own sense of dignity i've got nothing more to say about dignity than i said before dignity is at that root do unto others as you would have them do unto you ask others to do for others as they would wish to be done for themselves. Welcome to the Dignity Initiative podcast. This interdisciplinary research project responds to the recent imperatives to better understand the notion of dignity. It explores the social context in which an individual's dignity can be actualized or painfully ruptured. The need to protect dignity is limited without a clear definition of what exactly it is. It is a grounding concept underpinning international human rights theory. But in spite of that fact, dignity is a complex, multifaceted, and highly contested concept. We assembled a multidisciplinary team. It includes philosophers, psychiatrists, anthropologists, neuroscientists and epidemiologists collaborating across multiple universities. Alongside scholars, we have experts in international development and gender at UNICEF. Together, they examine the institutional, social, material, and psychological contexts that enable dignity. The research team pays close attention to various things. The feminist and culturally appropriate conceptualizations of dignity, its relation to inequality in various geographical, economic, and cultural settings. And finally, it explores the question of how dignity may be measured. This project is centered at McGill University, Montreal, funded by the Foundation for Psychocultural Research in Los Angeles, and collaborates closely with UNICEF. McGill's partnering offices include the Division of Social and Transcultural Psychiatry, the Institute for Health and Social Policy, and the School of Population and Global Health. In this edition of the Dignity Initiative podcast, meet Professor Susie Kilmister from the Department of Philosophy at Monash University, Australia. Her area of specialization is social and political philosophy, specifically studies of gender, race, and sexuality. She's also interested in normative ethics, meta-ethics, and philosophy of law. In her recent projects, she investigates the concept of dignity and the relationship between dignity and minority rights. Professor Kilmister's work has appeared in a variety of prestigious scholarly journals and collected volumes, including Philosophical Studies and New. In 2020, she penned the book Contours of Dignity. My name is Courtney Kirkby, and I had the pleasure of speaking with Susie Kilmister. Our project is born out of the challenges around defining dignity in order to change practices that impact it. How do you both define and untangle dignity? So I have a slightly different approach to dignity than I think a lot of philosophers do. The most common way I think to think about dignity for philosophers is as a kind of foundational moral feature of people. So in, in the sense both that something like dignity might be the thing that explains why humans have human rights. Dignity might be the thing that explains, the name that we give 
to whatever it is that explains why humans owe each other a certain kind of respect. So it's meant to be this kind of play this really, really central role in, in kind of moral philosophy. And often it's kind of a name that's given to some other kind of feature, uh, rationality, autonomy, um, something in that kind of area. And often it's really important for these theorists that it's the kind of thing that is relatively robust, right? If you have it, you've got it. And that's, that's kind of that. It doesn't come in degrees, dignity, um, you know, you have dignity or you don't. Um, it can't be kind of lost through other things other people do to you. I mean, if you think dignity is rationality, I guess you could kind of lobotomize someone that lost their dignity, but it's not meant to be the kind of thing that's fragile to kind of day-to-day -day interactions. Um, so this sometimes gets called the inner kernel view of dignity. So you can imagine dignity as this kind of like precious thing inside you um, that ends up, you know, then justifying a whole lot of other, other moral things. I have a few issues with that way of thinking about dignity, but I, the main kind of thing I think worth bringing out here in the context of your project is the way that I think that way of thinking about dignity misses a lot of really important work that the concept dignity does in people's day-to-day -day lives, right? How just how common it is for people to talk about feeling like their dignity was violated, feeling like their dignity was actually lost. And we can see patterns in the way people kind of invoke the idea of dignity or the context in which they invoke um, dignity, um, context of shame, of humiliation, of feeling denigrated. And so I think I wanted, I kind of started out by being interested in exploring that aspect of dignity, right? Is there something there, something that kind of unifies these appeals to this concept of dignity that is clearly not what the philosophers are talking about, right? When someone says, you know, after they've been, say, sexually assaulted, right, I felt like I lost my dignity. They're not saying, right, that, oh, that whatever it is that explains why I have human rights, I lost that, right? That, but there's something else. It's something, some other kind of concept they're groping towards. So my hope in developing the theory was to try to, um, I guess, build a, a conceptual framework that would make sense of that way of talking um, and, and uh, try to make sense of how, of kind of how that kind of uh, idea of dignity matters. Um, so the kind of core of my core of my approach um, starts with the idea of respect, basically, that I think that there's a really tight connection between dignity and respect. Um, and often when people talk about their dignity being violated or lost, we've got an, in, an instance of a really deep and important disrespect. I draw on the philosopher Stephen Darwell, and he draws this nice distinction between what he calls appraisal respect and recognition respect where appraisal respect is about kind of uh, esteem, right, whether or not you hold someone in high regard um, because of some kind of features about them. And, and this obviously comes in degrees. People can be appraisal respected more or less than other people. And then there's an idea he has of recognition respect, which is the idea that to offer someone recognition respect is to kind of um, recognise them as having a certain kind of status and therefore owed certain kinds of treatment. Um, a really a standard example of this would be something like a judge, right? You, a, a judge has a certain kind of status and we acknowledge that status through doing things like standing when they walk into the courtroom or, or addressing them as your honour or whatever the case may be. So there's no kind of, we might appraise or respect judges differently depending on how good a judge they are, but the recognition respect stays the same. It, it's kind of held in virtue of that status and there's certain kind of, kind of almost ritualised kind of ways of engaging with people we have to acknowledge that. I start with that distinction and then particularly zooming in on the appraisal respect idea, think about um, a particular way we have of appraising people and ourselves um, as kind of worthy of uh, a really general kind of esteem, right? So it's not about being like a good tennis player or a good musician. It's about being good in a sense of being a person, right? As being someone who's worthy of being um, held up. Um, or worthy of being, or, you know, kind of earning a kind of denigration. So a kind of whole person view of appraisal respect that I think we can have towards ourselves and that we can have within a kind of community towards one another. So thinking about this connection between respect and dignity and the idea of violations of dignity as being a kind of disrespect, the, the kind of theoretical framework I landed on focused on this idea that we have these kind of standards, right, that we can either set for ourselves or that are kind of operative within a community that we that we live in or um, participate in. 
standards that we need to uphold in order to be worthy of this kind of approach, general appraisal respect for us as persons. The kind of things that if we did them, it would be appropriate to feel shame or be appropriate for others in the community to think less of us. That's the kind of general idea. Um, some examples are probably going to help because it's a little bit abstract at this point. But we can think, you know, for ourselves, I think it's an important you know, practice to sometimes ask ourselves, right, what is it that I would be ashamed of myself for, right? Not just feel a little bit embarrassed, not just feel a little bit, oh, dear, I shouldn't have done that, but, like, actually I wouldn't be able to look myself in the eye if I did that kind of thing, right? If we can, if we can ask ourselves that, I think we're identifying what I'm calling dignitarian norms, the things that we need to be able to do to maintain a kind of healthy level of self-respect. Now, in my theory, we can kind of lose dignity ourselves by just not doing those things, by failing to do those things. But I'm more interested, and I think it's more morally significant to be looking at the ways that we're kind of vulnerable to others in our ability to maintain dignity in this sense, right? Because if there's certain things that if I did them, I would feel deeply ashamed of myself. I wouldn't be able to look myself in the eye. I would lose my self-respect. It's possible for others to force us to do those things. So this is how I understand the relationship between things like dignity and torture, right? Because torture is kind of a prime example of a practice that's designed basically to violate dignity. It's designed to find the things that we're most ashamed of and force us to do them. That's kind of how it ends up breaking people. I mean, obviously there's the pain, right? But often in torture, the pain's a means to this other end, right? And, and interesting, if you look... Um, which I only did a little bit of because I don't have that strong a stomach in, in the research for my book, looking at some of the kind of manuals, like the CAI manual for, for torture, the, um, oh, sorry, that's interrogation. Um, it's about this psychological element. The torture is most effective when you can break people and you break people, right, by getting them to lose any sense of themselves and their own self-worth. And so um, torture is not the only kind of case, but I think it's the most kind of paradigmatic case that brings out this idea I have of personal dignity, that you have these standards, um, they can be different for different people. And there are certain things people can do to you that violate that dignity. And in doing so, they, in a sense, make it appropriate by your own lights for you to feel ashamed of yourself, for you to lose your self-respect. You know, I focus largely on these kind of forcing examples, but I think it's really important once if we turn our attention from something like torture to a more everyday kind of situations like healthcare, that we can also need other people's help, right, to uphold these standards. And if that help's not forthcoming, right, it's, I think, also appropriate to call it a dignity violation, right? So if we think about aged care in particular, right, is someone being helped to put on clean clothes when their family's coming to visit, right? Are they, you know, able to go to the toilet with the door closed, <laughs> things like that? Are they given the kind of assistance they need to be able to do the things or embody themselves in a way or comport themselves in a way that meets their own standards, right, for not being shameful. So I think that that social aspect of it is really important too. We want to avoid, you know, torturing people, obviously, but most of us aren't in that position. But a lot of us are in a position to actually try to identify the things other people need to maintain their own personal dignity and kind of provide that kind of assistance. There is a social version of that too. So I've talked, I talked a bit about um, how we have our own standards of what it would be shameful to do. But I think we all live in communities or participate in communities, often multiple at the same time, where those communities themselves have standards of things that would be shameful for participants to do. Religious communities would be the most obvious example, right? If you're in a religious community, there are certain kind of things you ought not to do and you'll kind of be lowered in the eyes of the community if you do those. And I think those kind of standards can be targeted as well. Um, they'll often overlap, right? We often absorb the standards of our community, but, but I think it's also important to see that they can come apart and that both of them matter, right? It's not that the social stuff only matters when you've internalised it. I think it kind of matters in its own right as well. Do you have any thoughts on how your kind of framework, theoretical framework of dignity relates to Amartya Sen's capabilities approach? The first thing I guess I'd note is that uh, I think my theory of dignity shares, in a sense, Sen's reluctance to try to name, right, the capabilities. And, and so if you've got Sen's capabilities approach compare it to someone like Nussbaum's, um, I think I get the same kind of criticism Sen gets. Of, like, you should just name them and, and, and they should be objective. Um, and I often get that uh, same kind of argument that if you don't say 
what those kind of objective standards that you ought to kind of feel ashamed for violating, then your theory is too kind of amoral. Um, and so I think, you know, Sen and I in some sense on the same page about not wanting to do that um, and, and the theory having more flexibility and more applicability if you, if you refrain from doing that. Um, in terms of uh, how much, in a sense, we're doing exactly the same thing. I, I think one way to maybe think about the difference is that I'm thinking about, I guess, respect as something that gets distributed. And also we distribute to ourselves. That's maybe a strange way of thinking about it. Um, and there's not, at least when I'm thinking about per, what I call personal and social dignity, no real kind of sense that it necessarily ought to be equalised. The quality is not kind of playing a role, direct role there. Whereas I think for Sen, um, quality is kind of there in the background, right? Maybe in a, in a, in a, in a deeper sense or freedom maybe more than equality. And again, freedom's not really figuring in my account, except secondarily, right? We need a certain level of freedom in order to be able to do the things that, that we need to uphold our dignity. What I'm talking about when I talk about dignity is a much narrower class of things than what Sen's talking about with capabilities. And it's because not everything that matters to us matters because of this relationship to shame and respect. I guess kind of jumping to a more personal note, you, but yeah, why dignity? Why has it become you know, a central thread in kind of years of your work? To be honest, I can't remember what initially piqued my interest. I did, I was working on autonomy before I started working on dignity. And before that, I was working more in political philosophy, working on minority rights. You know, there was this kind of growth in theoretical work on dignity around the time, and probably was what piqued my interest. You know, the, uh, Rosen's book came out, Waldron's book came out. And I found them fascinating. And I found this idea of dignity both so evocative and so slippery and I was doing some work on human rights and trying to think about foundations of human rights as well and just being kind of frustrated with like people in that area just kind of like slapped the label dignity on whatever it is they thought the foundations of human rights were so the kind of intrigue evocation frustration but it's interesting dignity is the first topic I've worked on that I've wanted to keep working on for this long and that I don't see myself stopping working on it's it's really rich. And I think it's because it does all this different kind of work, right? I've, I've gone, kind of come back to this connection between dignity and human rights in some of my work now, trying to think about these more foundational kind of questions. But at the same time, there's all, all the stuff I've been talking about so far around kind of shame and humiliation, which I think is, you know, there's some theoretical connection between them, but they're certainly not the same idea. So there's just so much kind of there. It's such an important concept and it's so entangled. And there's a lot of work to be done, I think, in just untangling those threads. And yeah, I find that kind of fascinating. Yeah, that was exactly untangle is the word I was thinking of and using too when thinking about reading your kind of look at dignity. You do see that it's actually kind of several threads that have been wound together and put under this one term. How has your work on, on dignity, have you seen it impact your personal view of life, your own life? It's really central to my account of dignity that at least putting the theory together, it's it's kind of subjective, right? It's I don't try to find the kind of moral truth about what we ought to feel ashamed of and all the rest of it, because I'm really interested in how, you know, in a sense, people's attitudes towards themselves or how those social relationships matter, kind of independently of the content of those normative standards. And then there's this separate question, right, of what happens when those standards are noxious, which I do try to address a little bit in the book. But I think because I approach the question in that way, it's maybe given me a little more humility or um, just caution around the kind of, you know, attempts to change people's kind of attitudes or, but I think about, you know, people whose standards I find problematic, for instance, people who would take it to be undignified, you know, men who would take it to be undignified to share domestic labour or something like that, which I think is horrible, like terrible, I don't tell them to get over themselves. But also, you know, because I've been thinking so much about, you know, once you kind of try to abstract away from the content of these standards, what does it feel like, right? What does it actually feel like to be forced to do something that you find shameful? And I think that doesn't mean we should just leave these practices alone or these social hierarchies alone, but I think recognising that there's something shared, right, between what that person's feeling and their resistance and other kinds of dignity violations that might be more akin to how I would feel ashamed. Seeing that connection, I think, just helps 
practically, right, in trying to think about how do we improve this situation, right? Not by further berating someone, right? Because the whole point is that someone's feeling ashamed or feeling that they're being shamed by their community or will be shamed by their community. Using the theory to recognise a kind of source of resistance to social change, there's something productive there, both in kind of empathy with limits, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that we excuse certain kinds of behaviour, but I think recognising these shared responses to a certain kind of feeling of disrespect helps empathise and helps, I think, find practical solutions, I hope. Going back to the central question of human rights, and you had mentioned that dignity is just kind of slapped on as a, a reason for human rights. Mm-hmm. There's there's some debate between whether human rights exist because of dignity or be, is dignity just a human right? Your work in particular has challenged notions that not every human has that foundational dignity, specifically mm-hmm. um, people with severe and maybe intellectual disabilities. How do you see the role mm-hmm. of human dignity in human rights theory and who gets to enjoy dignity as a, a right and, and why? One of the other reasons why I've kind of taken a different path, I guess, to a lot of philosophers working on dignity is, is around this kind of question of um, dignity as a foundation for human rights and what that means and how we try to unpack that idea. My general kind of dissatisfaction with the answers philosophers have tended to give, because there's a kind of strand of thinking, and the philosopher James Griffin, to me, is a kind of paradigm of this. It says, look, dignity just is the name we give to a certain kind of agency. And it's that kind of agency that explains why we have human rights. And so if you don't have that kind of agency, you just don't have human rights, right? Just like full stop. And so on his account, he's quite explicit about these people with severe cognitive impairments, infants, they just don't have human rights. And I find that like deeply problematic. There should be some relationship between theory and practice. We want our theory to kind of inform or improve or, or shed some kind of light on our practice. And if we start from this theoretical framework, there's this whole class of people that don't have human rights. I think, you know, that that's not a good starting point and he's a bit of an outlier in being explicit about that but I think it's a kind of pretty unavoidable conclusion when you start searching for some quality some natural quality that's going to explain why we have human rights and why other animals don't right and this is the real trick right because obviously you could point to something like you know susceptibility to pain or something like that or some kind of self-awareness but but people don't want to extend human rights out to, to other animals as well. And so, so the goal is to try to find something specific to humans. And so now it's got to be more cognitively sophisticated. And now you get to this exclusion problem. So, so I, I mean, there are ways that philosophers have tried to kind of square that circle. But like I said, I find them kind of um, unsatisfactory. So part of the motivation for my approach to dignity and human rights is to think about what dignity could be such that you know every human being has it and it has some kind of foundational relationship to human rights. I do think that some of the what I was talking about earlier about personal and social dignity and, and issues of shame and humiliation, that can get us to specific content of human rights, right? It can explain things like why we have a human right not to be tortured and, and I think other kind of human rights will have will be related to that in some kind of ways. But in terms of these kind of foundational questions, similar to Jeremy Waldron's work on, on dignity as a status, this idea that rather than dignity being something that is already within us and that other people kind of recognise, that dignity is a status that we confer on one another. So it's this kind of collective achievement that we create this status. And part of what it is to have a status is to be entitled to certain kind of things, to have certain kind of rights, uh, to be owed certain kind of treatments, right? So there's kind of normative expectations perhaps for people who belong in that kind of class. We can go back to the judge, right? <laughs> judge is a kind of status. Um, you ought to behave in a certain kind of way. You're entitled to certain things. You have certain kind of privileges, right? The way I kind of come to think of it is that we can think of the human itself as a kind of status. To be human is to be entitled to certain kind of things, to have certain kinds of expectations of how we behave, have certain kind of privileges. But these aren't, just like with a judge, these aren't natural, right? It's not like there's some, you know, people aren't born judges, right? We, we create this class and some people enter it. And with a human, what I want to say is we've kind of just created this global class. And the practice of human rights has been instrumental in this, that it's created a kind of legal underpinning to this broader social practice of seeing other human beings as entitled to certain things, of, of acknowledging other people as having certain kind of rights and privileges, all human beings as having these rights and privileges. And, hum- and the human rights practice gives, like I said, this kind of legal framework for that practice. So on this kind of view, dignity is the name of that status. And there's kind of a, 
a, a self-reinforcing kind of relationship between dignity and human rights on this kind of approach because human rights practice is part of what creates a status but then once you've got the status part of what you're entitled to is the recognition of your human rights so it still works as a kind of you have human rights because you're a member of this class human and thereby have dignity um, it's just that in the background right the human rights had been part of the the construction of this status as well so so when you're talking about that would you say that the kind of dignity that provides us human rights is a status dignity mm. and that our human right is to have social and status dignity? Yeah, or social and personal dignity. Yeah, basically. There'll be exceptions to that. I mean, I was talking before about how on my account the the normative standards that underpin social and personal dignity are subjective. And, and I don't think we have a human right to just whatever it is, right, that we're going to feel ashamed if we don't do because some people's personal standards are incompatible with other people's, right? And so there's that whole someone's sense of personal dignity might be contingent on violating someone else's personal dignity. So, and human rights, you know, we need to all have them. They need to all, I mean, there's a possibility of variation, but I don't think compatible with the concept of human rights so we can have a human right that entails a kind of denigration of someone else so there's got to be kind of limits and, and part of what I try to do in the book is work through what those boundaries are not to having the not to what dignity is but to our entitlement to having our dignity upheld and those limits are largely around you know other people's right uh, and in particular I think there's a kind of self-defeatingness to kind of demanding someone else's denigration for your own personal esteem right would you like to just give an example that illustrates that where one person's idea of their personal dignity can infringe on someone else's? One of the examples I use in the book, if we think about kind of the antebellum US South um, in a kind of slaveholding society, would have been, I imagine, um, undignified for a slave owner if their slave ran away. Because the, the social esteem in that community Certain, they had to do certain things. They had to be a certain way. They had to operate within this community and, and uphold certain kinds of standards, including, you know, keeping, keeping their slaves in check. And so there would have been, you know, it sounds almost perverse to say it was a dignity violation right, of the slave owner for the slave to run away, but, but it's a kind of implication of my account that that's right. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that the slave morally did something wrong, right? It's just that it's identifying an effect of that. But there's a, a structural parallel between that and, you know, something like sexual assault, right, which is also, I mean, damaging for a lot of reasons, not just dignity related, but will often do things to people that cause them, cause them this kind of shame, both personal and social. And seeing those structural parallels, I think, is important. But it, just because they're structural parallels doesn't mean they both kind of get imported in, into the content of human rights. When would you say we have a moral responsibility to protect status dignity? For me, status dignity is it's a little different to the personal and social dignity that we've mostly been talking about and it's closer connected to this idea of human rights and dignity that, we, that we've been talking about more recently. We belong to different social categories would be another way of putting it. The human is the broadest one, but a lot of us also, you know, we have professions, we have nationalities, genders, and all of these categories or typically these categories will kind of carry with them kind of normative expectations, privileges, entitlements, that kind of thing. So the idea of status dignity is that for any kind of category we belong to, being a member of that uh, category means that you're kind of owed certain kinds of forms of behaviour, certain kinds of respect. So this idea of, rec going back to the idea of recognition, respect. Obviously different kinds of categories will, will demand different kinds of forms of respect. There's a difficult question, I think, around whether we're owed those, right, just by being a member of these categories, because they're socially constructed, right? There's nothing kind of deep and moral about, about these social categories that we've, we've constructed. And gender, I think, is an interesting one to think about with respect to this, right? Because, you know, in particularly in a kind of patriarchal society, the you know, how, how we ought to be in the social sense of ought to be kind of treated as a woman is very different from how someone ought to be treated as a man. And we certainly don't want to say that, like, okay, now that those um, expectations have been created, like everyone has a moral entitlement to be treated that way. And you have a moral obligation to treat everyone that way. That would be, that would be horrific. But I do think that, and this comes back to some of this ambiguity stuff I was talking about before, when we're raised in these societies and we internalise these norms of treatment, we experience it as disrespect when we don't receive them. And that can be kind of played upon and kind of used to denigrate people. 
because if you if there's a kind of public refusal to treat someone in accordance with standards that is kind of widely acknowledged are due owed to people in that category it kind of communicates that that person's not really a kind of member or that person's not a kind of upstanding member of that of that category it'd be like kind of refusing to stand for a judge right um it communicates something um and who's doing the refusal matters it communicates different things if it's just a kid who doesn't know any better maybe that's that's something different but if it's you know someone actually with quite a lot of power themselves and that that can be um it can really destabilize right the position of the judge within um, that category. And I think this gets really interesting because, you know, those of us who, you know, are women and don't think that women are treated well, I don't think women are treated equally, I think the norms of what it is to be a woman are pretty noxious. Nonetheless, right, to have some of those forms of treatment deliberately and publicly withheld can nonetheless be annoying, right? And, and more than annoying, it can be a form of denigration, we can recognise it to be a form of denigration. So things get really complicated here, right, because it's there's a kind of harm that's done to people when they're kind of publicly denied the recognition that they're owed in the sense that there's a normative, socially normative expectation that they're treated that way. But nonetheless, the, the very things that they're owed can be damaging and can maintain social hierarchies between different kind of social categories. There's no kind of clear and simple kind of answer to what do we do in this kind of situation, right? Because at least sometimes the withholding of those norms of treatment can itself be damaging, but but perpetuating them is also damaging. In the kind of broadest terms, I think, you know, when we find ourselves in these kind of situations, the goal is to change the norms of treatment. Like that's that's the goal, is to have it be possible to members of these categories that might be meaningful to us in, in many ways, where we can be treated in accordance with the appropriate norms and that not position us as kind of inferior within a broader society, right? That, that would be the goal. And the challenge is just how do we kind of get there and how do we navigate that kind of tension with failure to kind of treat someone in accordance with these norms as being potentially a way of denigrating them. So it all becomes, yes, <laughs> in yeah, practice quite difficult. How can a case like the recognition or exclusion of a trans woman in a group mm. of women be treated using your theory? This would be a kind of example for me of where like refusing to treat a woman as a woman is a, is a form of denigration, right? I don't think there's any inherent moral entitlement to be have a separate bathroom, like don't. So I don't know, as a, as a cis woman myself, I kind of think that like it's not something I'm neither here nor there to me, right, which bathroom I use. But we live in a society in which it's recognised that women ought to go into those bathrooms and men ought to go into those. And so to say to a woman, you're not allowed in that one, independent of, like, how hard it is not to be able to use a toilet, which is its own um, kind of, you know, possibly even form of torture, right, like not to be able to use a bathroom. But, but the social act of saying you don't, you're not allowed to do this thing, that is for women. I don't think we need to kind of, you know, naturalize anything about separate bathrooms to see that as a form of social denigration because, and a form of and a failure of recognition respect because it's a, a kind of particularly if it's done publicly, uh, uh, a kind of um, declaration, right? That you you don't belong. You're not you're not owed the forms of treatment um, that other women are owed. It does raise really difficult questions about. I'm kind of taking for granted who counts as a member of, of categories. And that's a, a, a kind of difficult and different question, one that I'm starting to grapple with in, in more work now, but kind of touched on in the book, but in a, in a fairly preliminary, let's say, <laughs> kind of way. There's lots of different theories of, of, of these kind of membership in, in categories and how we should understand them and whether we should have kind of uniform theories for different social categories of what it is to belong or whether whatever it is to, to count as a member of the group woman you know, whatever conditions we set, there might be, race might work differently, obviously nationality might work differently, um, you know, different categories might, it might just, they might just work differently, than, like the, what it is to be a member might work differently. In the examples we've talked about so far, while they can be pretty sticky, there's been kind of a clear moral directive, women should be equal to men and thus not treated differently. How can we apply this theory to relational or cultural dimensions of dignity. With the cultural context of dignity, there can be differing and sometimes completely contradictory 
expressions of respect. So how does this play out in an kind of increasingly globalized world and multicultural cities, et cetera, where multiple frameworks of the self and the relation to other and respect coexist? Honing in, for example, considering the values of what is dignified in a family unit, say um, in a country where there's partners from two distinct cultures and their children that are kind of trying to integrate those two. I mean, I think it's difficult. The first thing I think I'd stress is that, and this is, I think, both an explanation for why I have this very kind of morally neutral account of dignity um, uh, and also a kind of, you know, implication of having this morally neutral account of dignity is that I don't think just appealing to dignity can answer all these kinds of questions. That I think uh, it's important on my kind of framework that dignity can come into conflict with other kinds of values, like equality, for instance. Um, I don't think there's anything kind of inherently egalitarian about dignity. In fact, opposite, often the opposite. And autonomy is another one that I think interestingly related to dignity, but they're not the same thing and they can come into conflict with one another. When we're thinking about some of these kind of cultural situations, it's complicated in multiple ways. It's complicated because the dignitarian standards themselves can conflict. And they're also complicated because the dignitarian standards can conflict with other kind of moral values, like maybe autonomy or equality or justice. And so I think if we're thinking about those kind of concrete situations where, you know, we've got a family that that comes with different cultural expectations, different standards, you know, different things that they take to, to, that their, their dignity kind of requires. First, we've got to unpack, you know, whose dignity is at stake and in what ways, like how fragile is it? How, how much... Um, damage are we likely to do or are they likely to do to each other's dignity under certain kinds of under these kind of situations and same with the children also think about and what's the kind of egalitarian considerations at play here are people's autonomy threatened that kind of thing and sometimes I think when we when we get to lay that picture out clearly it'll be clear what needs to happen because things will just kind of align right like okay you might have two people's dignity in conflict with one another but like if we upheld one then the other one's autonomy and um quality would all be kind of damaged but if we upheld theirs right the other person's autonomy and, and, and it'd only be their dignity kind of state dignity might just line up but I think that's different from saying that dignity itself is the explanation for why we ought to lean one way rather than another and, and it helps us see like I was kind of saying before what is at stake for the person whose dignity we might have to end up compromising so yeah I mean a lot of my work is about really identify the moral texture of these kind of difficult situations I think sometimes if it errs, it errs on the side of maybe being a little too sympathetic right, to the side that's, that really ought to give, right, that, that's problematic in lots of ways, to be able to identify the, the costs that are being imposed there too. But I think, yeah, I don't think we do ourselves any favours by pretending those costs don't exist. And I think practically it can be helpful in terms of finding solutions if we're clear about the nature of those costs and what, is, what we're actually asking of someone when we ask them to kind of compromise on their dignitarian standards. Yeah, I guess that reminds me of another example you give uh, in your book when you're looking at status dignity and saying that making um, a political cartoon of a high-ranked politician, mm-hmm. while it's offensive and it may harm his dignity, that's kind of the point because his dignity or respect is overinflated, so it's sort of bringing mm-hmm. it down versus a minority group that already has fragile dignity where we'll look more to ennoble uh, that dignity the impact of kind of lessened respect is going to depend largely on how much we had to begin with kind of deflating the theme that someone's held in if they're already held in really high esteem it might subjectively to them feel you know unpleasant but it's just not as significant as denigrating an already denigrated group i think we should aim for more egalitarian society and so thinking about particularly with with social respect ensuring that people aren't groups of people in particular aren't denigrated to the point of not being able to to kind of stand as equals in society right we want a civil society where people can participate as equals or ensuring people's social dignity is protected can help us achieve achieve that i think important as well Um, so yeah sensitivities to the existing social hierarchy that's going to be important in working out you know how this account of dignity tells us to go forward. So I've talked a bit about violating dignity, but I have another concept of, of what I call frustrating dignity as well, where people aren't extended the opportunity to do the kind of things that could make them feel proud of themselves or that could, that could make them kind of achieve the respect of their peers. And most of us just take this stuff for granted because it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? These opportunities are kind of there a lot for the taking. 
But there are people for whom they're not. And I think prisoners in particular, people in detention, um, homeless people, right? The, there are people for whom really kind of basic things that, that kind of get you seen as some sense of kind of equal or as worthy of, of even just kind of basic appraisal respect aren't, aren't available, right? Clean clothing, being able to wash, you know, being able to, to put yourself together in a certain kind of way. And uh, we talked earlier about, about aged care homes and there's a similar thing here that even these quite simple kind of extending opportunities to people to do things that they kind of feel proud of or, or that can earn them the respect of, of their community can be really, really crucial. So there's kind of lack of opportunities to be sensitive to those as well, I think is really important. That sounds like it can cover a broad range of opportunities from yeah. work opportunities, opportunities Absolutely. to volunteer in your community, yeah, opportunities yeah, yeah. to hygiene, self-care. There's a project here in Australia about um, providing sanitary items to, to homeless women. It's a pretty basic kind of norm in our society that you don't bleed in public, right? And so to be able to appear in public without shame, I think, I think is really important. And so providing those really basic opportunities for people is really important as well. You talk about those opportunities as opportunities for ennobling is the word, the term you yeah. use? Yeah, because I think, you know, it's easy to focus on the kind of dignity violations and people being forced to be shamed and humiliated. And there's all sorts of horrific examples that can come up. You know, once we start thinking of dignity as a kind of thing that it's about upholding these standards, the standards would be ashamed to violate, but there's also standards we'd be proud to uphold um, or that our community would esteem us for upholding. I think those opportunities, you know, may not be quite as morally pressing, right, as, a, as a avoiding the kind of violating, but I think it's nonetheless important because I think those possibilities of being able to be proud of yourself or achieve even a basic level of esteem from your peers, for a lot of people that, that actually is difficult. And, and I focus a lot in my examples on you know, condi conditions I'm more familiar with in a kind of liberal democracy where the people for whom those opportunities are missing tend to be, you know, the most marginalised, um, you know, homeless people, people in prison, aged care homes, things like that. You know, and I, and I just don't have the kind of cultural knowledge to, to necessarily um, see how this plays out elsewhere. But I think we could, you know, at least tentatively think about you know, societies in which women aren't given an opportunity to go to school or girls aren't given an opportunity to go to school or their opportunities to occupy any kind of public positions that are incredibly limited, right? Where gender is going to play a really important limiting role here in the opportunities that are available to people to achieve this kind of um, either personal or social dignity. Particularly social, I guess. I mean, I guess in, in you know, when you have a deeply patriarchal society, women are taught to feel pride in certain kinds of things and those opportunities may or may, may, may be, still be there. Um, but this idea of the kind of peer esteem, um, making sure those kind of opportunities are available for people because it's a really important good, I think, um, to be able to you know, appear in your community as someone worthy of esteem. That sort of fast forward us a little bit to the current project that you kind of mentioned before, conferring dignity in law and healthcare. In that project, you say that the aim is to have a, quote, new understanding of the importance of dignity in human rights law and in healthcare services. Going a little further in that, looking at the global pandemic right now, and also the way that a lot of Western societies set up their healthcare and, and what values are at the forefront, how do you think that dignity could really be part of healthcare policy in a meaningful way? And what would that look like? So in terms of that specific project, uh, Linda Barclay is doing the healthcare side of things, so I, I won't speak on behalf of the project for that side of things, but I have been thinking, as I think a lot of people have been, about, you know, the, the impact of the pandemic. <laughs> There's a lot to be critical of, I think, in the ways in which the pandemics exposed and accelerated certain kinds of tendencies so every day, you know, there's a, each state has its press conference with how many people got COVID today and, and how many people died. And whenever they announce the people that died, we get an age, we get whether or not they were vaccinated, and we get whether or not they had underlying health conditions. And there's an implication, I think, here, maybe not a deliberate one, but maybe deliberate given the bulletin, but, it, but it's implication that if you died and either you weren't vaccinated or you had an underlying health condition, it was your fault, or at very least, it's not the state's responsibility, right? So we're only, there's this implication that we're only concerned, we're only really worried when we start getting vaccinated healthy people, healthy people die. Um, and I think there's something really problematic about this framing because I think, and this comes back, I think, to what I was talking about with status dignity, about this idea that um, 
you know, with status dignity to be a member of a social category, there are things that you're kind of owed, um, ways you ought to be treated. Um, and whether we're thinking about the kind of status of citizen or of human itself, right, this idea that your life matters, right, your idea that like, you know, political will should be exerted on, on keeping you kind of safe and healthy. Um, this kind of narrative, I think, it, it erodes those norms. And what it does is create a subclass of citizens or maybe even humans who matter, and it excludes those with disabilities. And so it removes a certain kind of dignity from those people. That's really dangerous. Mm. And it's a really subtle, I think, problem because when we're thinking about things like social categories, they're held in place by norms, by social norms, by the way we talk about them, by the kind of expectations that we have. And something like COVID, I think, throws a lot of things up in the air, things that may have been implicit or might have just assumed can come into tension and be, and be kind of challenged. There was a similar thing earlier in the pandemic. We're hearing less of it now, at least in Australia, but the implicit, but basically we should open up because don't worry, it'll only be the old people who die. And that does a similar kind of thing, right? It's like, well, you know, the 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 state exists to kind of keep people safe and healthy, but not those ones. They're just kind of excluded. And so it removes people from protections that they had before. Not necessarily legal protections, but these more kind of ephemeral social expectations of because you're a member of this community, we ought to treat you in these ways. But these kind of crises force us to confront the, the fragility of some of these norms. And I think makes it really important to fight for them as well, to push back on some of these narratives that would, would try to exclude, would try to present some lives as mattering less than others, as being more expendable than others. I mean, you also talk in the book about Black Lives Matter, which you mentioned is a way of taking something that was implicit and yeah. you know, pushing back against it. So it's an interesting example of what that pushback can look like. It's a nice example of you know, when there's these norms that may be quite fragile and maybe, you know, violated more often they're upheld than they're upheld, but people believe that they believe them. People believe that they take everyone's lives to man. Not everyone, right? But like by and large, I think in a Western liberal society, there's this broad operative, like, well, of course we're all good, you know, liberals in the broadest political philosophy sense of liberals. We, we think all lives matter. And then that challenge of like, but you don't, right? And let me show you how you don't. It kind of confronts people to acknowledge you know, their own hypocrisy or their own falling short of the standards that they take themselves to uphold. But And with Black Lives Matter, I think it's, you don't see as much of an explicit, no, your life doesn't. It's more of a denial that it was ever denied. But it is this, I think, calling forth those implicit norms and saying, do you really believe them? I'm going to show you, show you how you're not living up to them can be this useful, I think, useful political strategy. In order to have it be something workable for policy, do we need to be able to measure dignity? And we talk about measuring dignity. Mm. One, one thing we're looking at with um, some of the other scholars is the, you know, the physical markers of dignity in the body, just like you can mm. kind of look at a heat map and see shame and anger and other ways that that shows up physically in the body dignity might show up in uh, nutritional status or other markers do yeah, you think, think we need to, to measure it or can it just as a kind of a, a free-floating concept be useful for policy i think it can't be too free-floating to be for policy right we have to know what we're talking about and i'm a big believer in and you know there's no one true theory of dignity you know the different theories of dignity have different kind of purposes can be used for different kind of ends and as long as we're clear about which account of dignity we're appealing to then then we can avoid too much confusion but i do think we need something something a little more concrete but i don't think everything concrete is necessarily measurable my different kind of strands of dignity are going to look show up differently personal dignity for me it's going to be really correlated with something like self-esteem so it might not show up physically in the body though you i mean you might have things correlated to low self-esteem I mean, nutrition might be but you'll get a lot of noise right it's not going to be a, a direct correlation but, you know, measures of self-esteem are going to be pretty accurate marshes for me of personal dignity. I think. And social dignity, I think, is going to be more about, I mean, measured by psychology and sociology more than anything kind of physical, though I think will have knock-on physical and economic effects, would be, you know, trying to map out the social hierarchies within a community. Relationships of exclusion and inclusion would be how you would kind of measure it. Markers of esteem and denigration. And similarly with status, dignity gets a little bit tricky, right? Because for each category, there's going to be different entitlements. But we can at least in principle work out, I guess, for each class, there's a kind of core cluster of entitlements and, and who 
who broadly falls within that class is not receiving those. We could measure that. Um, and sometimes it'll be really obvious, right? Like, you know, if we think about citizens who are, in, you know, in a sense, all meant to be kind of legally equal and who is in fact equal under the law, you know, everyone's, you know, life is supposed to matter the most, but who is in fact extended healthcare and things like that, right? Uh, we can measure those kind of things. So yeah, I think in principle, yes, not as maybe directly on the body as some other theories of dignity might have. Though I think in general, for low, any kind of dignity, um, when it's denigrated, will show up in the body in some way or other. When we have terribly low self-esteem, we tend not to take care of ourselves would be a simple one. When someone's socially isolated or socially denigrated, it's much harder for them to kind of live well in that society. And that will have knock-on effects with self-esteem as well, but also just enable it in order to be able to like access goods within the society. And just straightforwardly with status dignity, right? If you're not extended the entitlements you should be getting, it's going to be harder for you to kind of um, uphold a decent standard of living. We might think about something like fat shaming in a Western society, right? Like that social dignity is in some ways correlated to to weight. And so there it wouldn't just be a correlation, a kind of, you know, loose correlation. There would be a kind of um, direct causal relationship between certain kinds of body types and how much social dignity you were able to kind of garner. Just talking a little bit about the gender implications specifically Mm -hmm. that arise when considering dignity and inequality in health. If there's anything there that you haven't said. It's probably going to depend a little bit on, on what kind of social circumstances we're sitting, we're thinking about. We have societies in which the being in the category of woman doesn't entitle you to healthcare, right? That's going to be a problem. When we look in at what certain kind of category memberships entitle you to, do we see kinds of gender coming up or particularly being a woman coming up as something where the entitled, what you're entitled to excludes certain things that we think are, are important for well-being. I mean, another kind of, I guess, way relationship between dignity and, and gender and, and healthcare that, that might be worth thinking about, thinking, coming back to kind of things like personal and social dignity is just different socializations around embodiment can affect how we experience certain kinds of healthcare or, or being in kind of healthcare settings. And just the importance of, I mentioned before, not being put in a situation where we feel like we've, we've violated our standards or our standards are kind of violated against our, our will. And it's not just a matter of gender here, but gender is going to be kind of, I think, wrapped up in, in, in culture as well in lots of different ways that just that kind of acknowledgement that, you know, to be left naked on a hospital gurney is going to be experienced very differently for some people than for others, wrapped up, like I said, in gender and culture. Again, that kind of sensitivity to when is dignity being, when is dignity vulnerable in what way? And are there kind of changes that we can make that are going to uphold their dignity without compromising, you know, other kinds of values? That, that that's a kind of, you know, should at least be a consideration. And I'd often, I think that hinges on kind of our capacity to have consent to be able to give our consent to the healthcare mm. procedures, to feel mm. comfortable with the person who's treating us. Exactly. And when there's things that are more sensitive, like if you're having a, a pap smear or vaginal exam, you know, do mm. you have the choice mm. to have a female healthcare provider or not? Mm. And when yeah. you're asked for a female healthcare provider, are you laughed at or are yeah. you? How yeah, are you you're accommodated? And, you know, are there, are there students in the room? <laughs> you know, obviously doctors get pretty inured to nudity and stuff, right? And myself, I'm, I'm not particularly fussed about, about nudity, so I find it hard to get into the headspace where this kind of stuff matters. But trying to imagine what it feels like to feel deeply ashamed um, being exposed and just to kind of, the, you know, when whether the doctor, how much warning they give you before they come in, right, of... Um, you know, when they're going to move that little sheet around, do they give you warning? That kind of stuff, right, is is important. Do they remember that you're naked? I mean, and it's hard and it requires communication and, and cultural sensitivities in ways that, you know, aren't always taught, I think, to doctors. And that's, I think, the, the one of the issues. It's not necessarily a single provider, although there are yeah. single providers that are very problematic, but that sometimes it's more of these structural issues where is there mm-hmm. enough funding in healthcare that doctors can have enough time with their patients to yeah. take that time to have uh, educated consent. <laughs> and I think the kind of cultural sensitivity as well, it's not feasible to think that every doctor can kind of know about every culture that they might find within a multicultural city, right? Like that's, that's not going to be possible. But I think Somewhere like Australia, the the imperative of having some kind of cultural sensitivity around, say, Indigenous Australians, right? Especially given the kind of history of injustices kind of done through the healthcare system as well. 
again, every doctor might not be able to know everything, but ensuring that within a particular healthcare system, there are people, right, who we can call on to provide that kind of, it can maybe equivalent to translation services, who can explain, like in this community, these are the kind of things that, that ought not to be done so that people can have their dignity protected. <laughs> like I said, it can get, you know, it can get deeply problematic. I mean, you you might have a patient who finds it undignified to be treated by a doctor of colour, right? And and I don't think that the answer to that is like, well, let's just get, find them a white doctor, right? I, I think at that point there's difficult kind of conversations that need to be had. But I think the kind of, again, default of like, let's at least hear hear out what what where someone finds their dignity kind of threatened and how and why. And are there accommodations that are reasonable for us to make? I just wanted to touch on one of the quite sensational cases you use as an example mm-hmm. um, in the book about what was formally done. Um, I guess it was a television show where there was dwarf tossing that was happening in France. You made um, a point in this case, a really specific point uh, that there becomes when talking about status dignity, there's a balance between personal autonomy and the way we permit others to treat us and maybe violate our dignity, how that can have impacts for others who share our social status. Elaborate more on this balance of when kind of the status dignity or that of our collectives or our communities mm. um, can interfere with our personal autonomy. The basic idea here was that if you're a member of a group that, that is, I guess, vulnerable to denigration, the kind of question I was interested in was how much freedom should you have to do things that might kind of inadvertently invite further denigration of that group, right? That might erode certain kinds of norms, particularly when we think about people with disabilities and specific kinds of disabilities. You know, people have fought very hard to be extended respect, that, you know, to have a disability doesn't mean that we can be mocked, doesn't mean that we can be made fun of, doesn't mean that we're entertainment. And the idea that to have someone with that disability publicly kind of and explicitly fight very hard to be able to do the very thing that the community takes to be denigrating. And I think what's important in this case is that it wasn't just someone who was being engaged in some kind of entertainment and happened to be a dwarf. I mean, it was dwarf tossing. That was the point of the entertainment. It was throwing me because I'm a dwarf. And so I think that what I found intriguing about this case was precisely that idea of what he was doing in asking to be participating in this. Had these ramifications beyond him, right? He might not have felt denigrated by that act and may have, you know, wanted to do it and and found all sorts of financial and other benefits from it. But allowing that act to go on makes this border kind of public uh, commentary on how it's appropriate to treat dwarves, right? So for a society to say, well, let this go on, is for that society to weaken the norm of um, we extend certain kinds of respect to people with disabilities. And I don't think there's any simple answer to like what you then do, right? Um, that it's always the case that, you know, that the collective's kind of entitlement to be treated with dignity trumps the individual's autonomy. But I think just exploring that tension, I think is really interesting. Identifying that tension can be really interesting. And at the very least, I think it should get us thinking about, you know, there's always questions about when should the state interfere in things, but we can always ask ourselves, right? If, even if I'm comfortable with something, is my doing it, inviting it, um, going to have ramifications for people who share an identity with me. And I, I find it interesting to think about that as a woman as well, right, and the decisions women make often under kind of compromised circumstances, have kids, don't have kids, raise the kids, you know, th- th- I mean, obviously raise the kids, but like, um, you know, stay at home, those kinds of questions. Um, you know, feminists have talked about this a lot, about the ways in which these personal decisions can have these broader kind of ramifications because they feed into these these background kind of social norms. And I think dignity just kind of gives us another way into thinking about similar kinds of issues that personal decisions aren't always personal because because we do share social identities with others. The way we act and the way we demand to be treated helps shape the norms around um, how people like us should be treated. And there's a certain responsibility that I think comes with that. And we can't just kind of shrug it off. We might all things considered decide that our personal autonomy in this case ought to ought to triumph. And we don't, you know, we but we should at least I think be aware of that possibility that our actions are shaping more than just how we're treated. These are questions of how to be a good person, hmm. how to be a good human being. Yeah, and how to be good to others. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean I guess I'm uh, in the book I'm less 
interested in, you know, how do I uphold my own dignity? I mean, it's not really a kind of work on virtue, though I think you could do related work on virtue and it'd be interesting. I'm kind of more interested in how we treat one another, right, and how and how my actions might impact on others. And I guess a kind of care, right, of, of a care for others' self-esteem and a care for um, their position in a society and how easy it can be to kind of inadvertently denigrate someone right or to stand by while someone's being denigrated or to fail to extend to them the sometimes quite simple kind of goods that will enable them to achieve a level of self-esteem or, or um, again kind of stand as a kind of equal in societies. <laughs>